from the Pradesh Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pradesh from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pradesh alum. This week, Tzav. This week, as more and more of us around the world are being asked to stay home to help keep everybody safe, we want to tell you about additional sources of Torah learning that Pardes has made available. You can see the list and get all the details from the Pardes website, Pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S, dot O-R-G dot I-L. This week, Tzav with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike Foyer is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Mike Foyer. I know that sometimes it can seem like the whole book of Vayikra, of Leviticus, is speaking to us from another planet. I mean, this goat, that bull, the liver, the kidneys, the fat, and the kishkas. I don't know, biblical leprosy. And that's at the best of times. How about now? When we are in the midst of a global crisis, the likes of which hasn't been seen in our lifetimes, that of our parents, or perhaps even our grandparents as well. Now, I have to tell you that it's my firm belief, as well as repeated experience, that the weekly parasha is always speaking to exactly where we are today. We just have to do the work to tune in and hear it. So let's give a shot and see what Tzav has to offer. So the parsha opens with its opening on. Tzav et Aaron et Banav right? Command Aaron and his sons thus, Zot Torah Ha'ola. This is the Torah of the Ola. And this line contains a structure which actually repeats itself throughout our parasha. Zotorat ha, fill in the blank. The Ola, the Mincha, the Shlamim. Every category, or at least all the sort of general categories of sacrifice, is mentioned in context of its Torah. And that is a, such a powerful world because Torah, according to many opinions, comes from the root of the Hebrew word Hora'ah. Hora'ah is a particular type of teaching. It's a practical instruction. And that's always important to remember, by the way, that, that the wisdom and knowledge which are contained in Torah are never abstract. They're always meant to bring us to action. The Torah is meant to shape the world, right? And that's a big question when it comes to the Torah Ta'ola, Torah Ta'mincha, and fill in the blank, how are these Torot, these practical instructions about the details of the sacrificial service, going to teach us anything now? And in order to answer that, we have to ask, well, what's the Torah of Korban? There's a particular type of Torah, Torah that's being offered here, the Torah of the Korban note, of the sacrifices. It's really hard to relate to sacrificial service in our age of abstraction. And we want to think about God. We contemplate, we pray. And it's not just an age of abstraction. We live in an age when even those who eat meat are far removed from the act of killing and rarely ever see the sight of blood. Now, before we go any further, I feel it's necessary to say for full disclosure, I've been a vegetarian for 25 years. But I got to tell you that nonetheless, I long to see the sacrificial service again. Because I think that a deep source of the immorality, of the inhumanity, of the callousness that characterizes our relationship to much of life on our planet is due to the fact that we don't have to see the blood flow before we eat meat. Rolf Cook has a fantastic piece on this. I'm not going to go all the way into it. You can check out the translation on the source sheet, which is provided with the shear here. But just to paraphrase, he says, so long as humanity or human morality sees it necessary, or at least right, to take animal life for its physical needs, meaning as long as people eat meat, it's fitting that the more essential purpose of existence, which is to teach inner awareness of the obligation to acknowledge the good God, 
come through the offering of animals. Rav Cook goes on there and he sort of speaks out a worldview which says that though you may think that animal sacrifice is a strange way to know the goodness of God, it's no stranger than eating meat. And so long as our morality allows us to take life to serve our needs, then he says it's a necessity that we do the same act in order to further our relationship with God. And he goes on to say that when we get to the point in which we would be repulsed by the notion of taking a life in order to meet our personal needs, then will come the time when he says the Sanhedrin, the great court which sits in the place which God will choose, will delve deep into the Torah over the question of whether it's permissible to sacrifice any animal to God when we've reached the point that no one could will this at all because of our moral consciousness. It's a profound point he's making that we can hem and haw or scoff and roll our eyes at the notion of animal sacrifice, but so long as we live in a society that sanctions eating meat, that's simply serving our needs. What's happening to serving God? That's a bit of a side point, but really, the, the truth of the matter is, the word korban doesn't actually mean sacrifice. That would really, strictly speaking, probably be a zevach in Hebrew. A korban comes from the three-lettered root kuf resh vet, or bet, depending on how you say it, and that means the lead karev, to draw close. So if I were going to translate the word korban, I would call it an offering. So our parsha is here to teach us Torah korbanot, the practical instruction on how to draw close to God through the act of offering. You know, in the Sforno, has a very interesting comment on that opening line of the Eucharist 6. So you can see the text there in the source sheet. He says, um, he says, after we just heard in the previous parsha in Vayikra, sort of the uh, details of how the sacrifices are actually offered, right? Um, he says, like, which are in every particular way. The Torah now refers to the specific Torah pertaining to each of these voluntary burnt offerings. He means what he says is that this is not the detailed practical instruction of how you do the sacrifices. That appears elsewhere. Right? Because he goes on and says, we pointed out already that different people who feel the need to offer this sacrifice are motivated by quite different considerations. And he continues, the variety of sacrificial offerings provided for by the Torah corresponds roughly to the variety of human personalities and the considerations motivating their actions. Meaning that everyone draws close to God in their own particular way. And even within ourselves, we approach God in different ways in response to the specific situation in which we find ourselves at any given moment. You hear that line in the Sworn of the variety of sacrificial offerings provided for by the Torah corresponds roughly to the variety of human personalities and the considerations motivating their actions. And that means that there's never just one Torah Korban. There's never one practical instruction for how we draw close to God through the act of offering. Right? We have to be sensitive to self and to surrounding in order to know what is best offered when and how. Now, I'd love to just stop there and delve deeply into the details of the Parsha, and there is much to be said. You'll be astounded how much ink has been spilled on every jot and tittle, as they say, of this Parsha, and it would be a very positive exploration. But these points of guidance, let's say, in our divine relationship, these Torot, don't stand alone in our weekly reading because we know that the service in the temple failed or more properly, perhaps we failed it. And the problem 
with an action-oriented relationship with God is that the external actions might become an end unto themselves. In fact, they might not just become an end unto themselves. They might become self-serving. And perhaps that's why our tradition has handed down to us the practice of reading the latter part of the seventh chapter in the book of Jeremiah as the Haftorah, as the complementary sort of a prophetic portion for Parshat Tzav. Because the opening lines of that Haftorah strike a rather different note than our entire parsha. They're a serious indictment of the entire sacrificial path. It says in Jeremiah 7, 21 through 23, Koma Hashem Tzvot Eloi Yisrael, right? The Lord of God, host of Israel says, he says, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat, meaning take your sacrifices and eat them yourselves. For when I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifice. That was not what I wanted, said God. This is what I commanded them. Do my bidding that I may be your God and you may be my people. Meaning what what God wants is for us to listen and to take upon ourselves the divine relationship and to be the people that we can truly be. So this is a bit strange. How can we reconcile reading Parshat Tzav, Torot Akobanot, all these practical instructions on how we draw close through offering, and Jeremiah, which seems to be an indictment of that entire spiritual path. Well, one answer might be to say, that was then, this is now. Once upon a time, in the ancient world, Parsha Tzav and the Torot of Korbanot was what God wanted, but things change. Now we have prayer, or the doing of the commandments, or learning Torah, or fill in the blank. We don't do that anymore. That would work just fine if it weren't for the fact that if you call Torot HaKorbanot, this practical instruction in drawing close through the act of offering, a thing of past, then you have to contend with another prophet, and that would be Malachi. In that tremendously powerful and passionate third chapter of Malachi, which if you haven't read it, hang up right now and, and give it a perusal. It's not so long. Where he says, Behold, I'm sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall come to his temple suddenly. There is a place we're meant to meet, says Malachi, and I will clear the way, says God, and and dwell with you once again. As for the angel of the covenant that you desire, he's already covenanting. But who can endure the day of his coming? It's kind of a wrathful chapter. That's why I read it like that. And who can hold out when he appears? Listen to this. For he's like a smelter's fire and a fuller's lie. She'll act like a smelter and a purger of silver, right? This is a crucible which will precede the meeting place once again between Israel and God, right? And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they shall present offerings in righteousness, that those Torota Korbanot will be done the way they were always meant to be, to transform us, like the Sforno said, to be conscious of who I am and when I find myself, to be responsive to the moment and to myself. Then he finishes... The offerings of Yudah and Yushalayim will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of yore, in the years of old. Malchi is telling us that Torot HaKorbanot, these practical instructions in drawing close to God through the act of offering are always relevant, but there's an essential refinement we require before this path of divine intimacy through offering can really be redemptive once again before we can actually be serving God and not just our own needs. As Jeremiah says, take the meat and eat it yourself. 
Now, the question, of course, that leaves us with is what does that refinement look like? The answer is, I'm sure, many things. But this is, after all, a drasha on Parshat Tashvua, and there is one answer that I find at least to be explicit in our Parsha. Right in the middle of the Parsha, in fact, is one of those lines which the Torah gives us that you might just gloss right over, which is frankly fair enough. It seems like a throwaway in context, right? Up into the middle of our Parsha, we get a little context as a whole. The book of Ayikra has been talking about the service of the Mishkan, right? Really, we've actually been talking about it since well back in the book of Shemot, the donations for the Mishkan of the tabernacle, the floor plan for building the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, the descriptions of Aaron's clothes, the makings of Aaron's clothes, and then this is how you do the offering. This is how you do that offering. It's all been a description of what you're about to do. Now, finally, at the, in the middle of our parsha, the beginning of the eighth chapter of Vayikra, it seems we're about to get some action. It says in Vayikra 8, 2 and 3, right? Take Aaron and along with his sons and, and the clothes you just made and all the anointing oil, the bull of sin offering, everything, everything you've done and assemble the whole community at the entrance of the tent of meeting, Right? Clearly, that command to assemble the whole community is just a lead up to what's followed. Everybody's put so much effort into creating the structure which you're actually going to now use to serve, to draw close to God. So the assembly is just a necessary precursor. Or is it? Because when you open up Vayikra Rabbah, right, the classic rabbinic midrash on the book of Leviticus, and you'll see it there again in the source sheet, you see the following quite mysterious notion. It says, and assemble the whole community at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's our verse. Rabbi Elazar said, there were 600,000 men who made up Israel. And you say they all gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting? I mean, it's quite a crowded space. Rather, this is one of the places where something small contains something very large. Shehechzik mu'at et Where something small contains something very large. And in case you don't understand, the Midrash goes on and gives several examples. In the source I gave you, I just filled in one. It, it quotes the verse from the first chapter of Genesis. It says, let the water below the sky be gathered into one area that the dry land may be up here. And then the Midrash asks the same question, more or less. It says, wait, the way of the world is that you pour a full vessel into an empty one. Is it possible to pour a full vessel into a full one? But we know at this point in creation, the whole world was covered with water. And yet it says, let the water be gathered in one place. Ah, Says the Midrash, this is one of the places, where something small contained something very large. Meaning that moment of transition from all of the preparation, all the huge portions of the book of Shemot, which were the gathering of the materials and the description and then the, distru- and the construction, and the beginning of the book of Ayikra, which was the details of Torah to Olad, Torah to Me, all these ways in which you're going to serve God by drawing close. All of that has been in preparation for this moment. And in this moment, you have to understand that we are beyond the boundaries. That it's no longer about the sort of um, logically reconcilable construct you've created. That this is much bigger than you can really imagine. The relationship which emerges from this vessel you built is able to hold far more than you really know. Because in a sense, when the Midrash is speaking about a container that can hold more than you would think, I think it's paralleling exactly what Malachi was speaking about when he said that what was necessary in order to return the right relationship that's meant to come through Torah the Korbanot, through that practical instruction, 
in drawing close to God through offering. What was necessary, said Malachi, was a crucible. Because remember, a crucible is also a place where amuat machzit et machzik, sorry, where a little thing actually holds a lot. Because you put ore into a crucible, you crush it up, but the reality is there's way more there than what you want. A crucible is a vessel that allows heat and pressure to become transformative rather than destructive. And when we're speaking about a metal, it allows the slag to burn off and the elements to join together, whether as a pure metal or as an alloy. And when it comes to a people, like the tent of meeting, a crucible removes that which divides us and can potentially leave behind a united nation. So whether you're interested in the literal return of sacrifice or not, this is a Torah, a practical instruction, which we can all take from this week's parashah. And I think it speaks to where we are right now, because the world is in a crucible. All of us, individually, I mean, right now there are five children outside my door. I don't know if you've been hearing them in the background, I apologize, but we're in a very small space and it's holding an awful lot. And all of us together are in a crucible. Has there ever been a greater proof of just how small our planet is than the spread of this virus? And we could take a lot to heart. There are many practical lessons that can emerge. And if we want to come out from this crucible refined, ready to draw closer to God and closer to one another, then we have to remove that which divides us. We have to take that wisdom of Korbanot, of how to draw together by offering to God, to one another, and employ it in our daily actions. And then maybe, just maybe, we'll all merit to see that day, let it be soon, let it be now, that the offerings of Yudah and Yerushalayim will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of yore and in the years of old. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Foyer. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardis from Jerusalem.